This is David Colosi with a new episode in the Knights of Philosophy series. In this lecture from the Knight of Philosophy in 2019 on October 5th and 6th, from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. at the New School for Social Research in New York City, Professor of Philosophy at Penn State University Nicholas DeWarren discusses our debt of plastic and nuclear waste passed on to future generations. This is Uncalo, or the contamination of eternity. What makes this recording unusual is that in this back-to-back setting of non-stop speakers and lectures, the speaker following Dr. Warren's 5 a.m. lecture canceled, so the audience remained asking questions well after 5.30. I included that Q&A. The musical and other audio transitions are my own and were not part of the actual event. Welcome to eternity, time in the morning, uh, wake up, you're here. Uh, my name is Nicholas DeWarren, I'm professor of philosophy at Penn State, and I guess I should thank you for being here at five in the morning, I'm thanking myself for being here at five in the morning. And what I thought we would do, again, such late night, the topic of eternity is somewhat appropriate, and I just want to share some reflections on thinking about what I guess many of us think about um, different ways, which is the question as to whether we as human beings uh, today in, in our world are witnessing, uh, experiencing, undergoing a kind of profound transformation of what it is to be human, whether we understand that through climate change, political upheavals, etc. And I'd like to sort of propose a reflection that uh, two phenomena in particular the production of nuclear waste and the production of plastics represents a kind of unprecedented rupture in the history of humanity. That rupture has something to do with what I would like to propose is one of the defining desires of the human, and that is to somehow build structures, build uh, material objects that somehow express our desire for eternity, and that the production of plastics and the production of nuclear waste represents paradoxically the fulfillment of this desire to produce a material object that is eternal or that somehow puts us in connection to something eternal. But the paradox is precisely the contamination of eternity insofar as plastic products as well as more, I guess, profoundly nuclear waste is de facto a material object that will last for eternity. So in both cases, plastic and uh, nuclear waste, their existence, their life as fundamentally materials which are destructive of life as such, will be longer than the entire existence of human existence itself. Uh, so I want to reflect on this sort of paradoxical idea that we humans have produced something that will outlast the history of humanity itself. And precisely what we have produced that will outlast the history of humanity itself is itself destructive of life as such. And this is especially the case with uh, nuclear waste. So in a few minutes, just to share some reflections, not to answer the problem, but to show the complexity of the problem, I just want to remind you that the earliest evidence of human consciousness and self-expression 
and by human, I mean the species Homo sapiens, is the production of artworks. And here, of course, you may know are the caves of Chauvet in France, which are built underground. Now, as you know, anthropologists and paleontologists are not exactly clear about the function of these caves, but an educated guess is that they most likely had something to do with religious practices of some sort. So the, the, the idea of going underground in order to establish a relationship with something that is higher than the ground, indeed in contact with something metaphorically the heavens, through the production of an artwork, and artworks which roughly dated are 40,000 years uh, ago. Now, the reason I want to put this into perspective is if you look at all these productions of monumental architecture, uh, pyramids, um, uh, Stonehenge, this idea that we build structures, cathedrals, in order to establish something that endures and will outlast human finite existence, what I'd like to propose is that the production of plastics and the production of nuclear waste is the way that human beings have achieved this goal, but precisely for the diametrically opposite point of the destruction of life itself. So I want to talk a bit first about plastics. Um, so as you know, we are producing plastics, and plastics, in a sense, um, are incredibly difficult to break down. And as they break down, they become actually ingested, not only into animals. So this is an image of a bird from um, the Pacific that has eaten plastic and literally died of the ingestion of plastics. Um, as you know, plastics also over time don't really get destroyed. They become atomized into micro pellets, which then we humans ourselves ingest. So we could say that plastics represent the way in which through the production of plastics and the waste of plastics, we are plastifying the world insofar that all living things are then becoming plastic themselves, insofar that we're ingesting plastics, including human beings. We ingest plastics when we eat fish, etc. So this is just a sense of, as I'm sure many of you know, the movement of ocean trash, not only of the oceans becoming sort of uh, channels of the, the movement of plastics, but just again, sense of the production of plastics. So we are producing plastics, uh, you know, millions and millions of tons, and plastic is de facto indestructible as a material object. So this is the problem I mean, of the time scale that basically we produce one trillion single-use bags per year and that uh, the worldwide production of plastic is 35 kilograms per person. So you think our population is cresting six or seven billion per person, 35 kilograms. And all of this is materiality, which in a sense cannot be destroyed. So it has to be re-ingested. And in the re-ingested into all organisms of life, those forms of life themselves become plastic. So I'd like to propose a term that I get from Philip K. Dick, that this is what I would call the kippleization of the world. Kipple is a term that Philip K. Dick coined um, to describe the detris, the, the waste that we produce, but the waste that we produce which is precisely not the waste that we can get rid of, but that returns and becomes us. So insofar that we are literally becoming plastic people, uh, we are un undergoing a kind of kippleization 
of our existence, and we are paradoxically becoming eternal insofar that the, the, the age time frame for the decomposition of plastic is millions and millions of years. So long after human beings are dead and gone, plastics will still exist. And indeed, you can imagine a world that becomes fully a plastic world insofar there will be no organic creature that will not exist without some percentage of that organic creature to be made of plastic including our own bodies and so forth that we ingest. So this would be one aspect of the way in which we produced an object that is material, that is de facto eternal, and that eternality fundamentally transforms the very organic nature of life. Um, and indeed, we become the very waste that we have produced, the very waste that outlives and outlasts our own finite condition. And I would propose to call this the kippalization of, of human life through the production of such waste elements. The second thing now I want to talk about, I want to talk about these two phenomena. On the one, the production of plastics and the capitalization of human life. And on the other hand, a phenomenon which doesn't seem to be directly related, but is related to the production of eternity, and that's the production of nuclear waste. So as you know, that the amount of nuclear waste that is produced by nuclear reactors, as well as other technologies, like for example, weapons technologies, so things that seem in one sense quite innocent, like artillery shells and tank shells, use depleted uranium core, and that depleted uranium core is highly toxic and contaminated um, uh, material, which takes millions and millions of years to decompose. So the production of nuclear waste is precisely the production of materiality, which is toxic to all life and will outlast the very time frame in which human existence lasts. So you have to imagine we have produced something that lasts longer than the entire history of the human species, so the human species of Homo sapiens. Now, one of the things I want to sort of call your attention to is that at this point in the world, there does not exist a facility that can house safely nuclear waste in order to ensure that this nuclear waste is housed in a way that it can be uh, sort of protected and cared for for the millions of years that it will exist. So there is one exception, which is a project now in Finland called Onkalu. Olkiluoto in Eurojoki has been chosen as the site of the disposal facility for spent nuclear fuel. Onkalo. Onkano is a Finnish word, which means the place that you should never remember, where they are trying to build underground a facility that will house nuclear waste, nuclear waste where it has to be housed for 50 million years. So first there is the architectural challenge. How do we build a building, a complex for eternity to contain the contamination of eternity? Um, and this is a site that they are building, um, which will be ready in 2020, so next year, and will be finally sealed in 2021 So the idea is to fill it with this nuclear waste and then to permanently seal it with the idea that it should never be opened at any point in the future of the history of mankind. Um, and it has to, in a sense, be at least sealed and uh, and contained for at least 100,000 years. So remember that the 
earliest evidence we have of human construction underground of the caves of Chauvet is 39,000 years. So we have to now build something that will last at least 100,000 years. And here are the challenges which I just want to explore is, how do we ensure that human beings who might even be human beings that we would no longer recognize as human beings, so human beings in 40,000 years, how can we communicate to a future humanity which we cannot even imagine what kind of language human beings will speak in 40,000 years? Because of course we have to communicate instructions how to take care of this facility. How do we also ensure legally that there's a legal obligation that in 10,000 years, let alone 100 years, whatever government is installed in Finland or that territory which is now called Finland will feel itself legally and financially obligated in order to take care of this. And in fact, the Finnish government passed a special law obligating all future Finnish governments to financially support and uphold the legality of ensuring this site of Bonkalo. Um, the site of Bonkalo, and this is a schematic map, in a sense is one of the most archaic human endeavors to build underground in order to reach eternity, much like the pyramid, much like the caves of Chauvet, but with precisely the opposite effect, not in order to secure the afterlife as with the pyramids of Egypt, but in order to secure that there is an afterlife from an afterlife that is fully contaminated, namely the contamination of eternity. So the idea is to drill down uh, kilometers in what was deemed geologically as an area of the earth which would not undergo seismic activity and to progressively fill caverns and caverns of this material of nuclear waste and then in 2120 to seal it forever. Now of course one of the complicated questions is we can imagine an Indiana Jones in 10,000 years who discovers the ark, a secret power, an energy source, and even if Indiana Jones in 10,000 years can read the instructions, you should not access this because it is nuclear waste, much like archeologists today, no one heeds the dangers of the past as to what is contained in something that shouldn't be discovered. So how are we to ensure that future archeologists and future scientists will simply ignore our attempt to forget what must be forgotten, but must be remembered that it should always be forgotten. And part of that complexity is also that we don't know whether in 10,000 years, nuclear waste is no longer waste, because we could imagine a scenario where we have an advancement of technology and the human species, where in 10,000 years, what for us is the most destructive material ever produced in nature is material which would provide us infinite energy. Or indeed, you could imagine a scenario where we would build a religion based around this material, because in 10,000 years, this material would have some sort of magic power that we can't imagine. If some of you are familiar with Andrei Tarkovsky's film Stalker, which is based on the science fiction novel Roadside Picnic, uh, sort of a classic of Soviet science fiction literature, the idea there is that aliens have visited the Earth, have found nothing that interesting or intelligent, and when they left, like at a roadside picnic, they left their trash. But this trash has powers that then we human beings can use to do things technologically that we never imagined, and so we have to create a zone around it to protect ourselves from it. 
uh, and then in the film and in the book, there's the stalker who leads us into it in order to bring this. So we can have the same sort of scenario that in 10,000 years, we are the aliens who have left trash, and the future humans of 10,000 years might discover that this trash actually is no longer trash. I am now in this place where you should never come. We call it Onkelo. Onkelo means hiding place. In my time, it is still unfinished, though work began in the 20th century when I was just a child. Work would be completed in the 22nd century, long after my death. Onkelo must last 100,000 years. Nothing built by man has lasted even a tenth of that time span. But we consider ourselves a very potent civilization. If we succeed, Onkelo will most likely be the longest lasting remains of our civilization. If you sometime find to the future find this, what will it tell you about us? So I want to sort of leave you with this, and again, the point of sort of raising this topic is not to answer a question, but to show you the complexity of trying to understand what is the problem that we have to figure out in order, on the one hand, to purify, if at all, the world of the plastic that we are becoming, and on the other hand, the nuclear waste that we have produced in a way where the, the problem isn't a problem where we don't yet know the solution or a problem that is too complex, but it's a problem for which the frame of time outstrips the very possibility to imagine what in fact is the problem. So what in fact is the problem that we have to solve today in order to build something that will last at least 100,000 years? That requires a future which is completely unimaginable. And yet on the other hand, we have to make decisions today. So we might say that the paradox is that we have to ensure an afterlife to the species by understanding how to protect ourselves from the afterlife that we have produced, the contamination of eternity. The urgency is to do it in the now, though we would only know how to do it in the now if indeed we had reached the point of eternity, where at the end of time we would know what exactly is the problem for which today we need a solution. And on that note, 5.30 in the morning, I leave you with just more questions about the contamination of eternity. Thank you. You dream about You think only of You are. Pebbles. Plastic. Consider policy insurance for a hundred thousand years to be a viable solution, something that we would understand, but that would even address what you're talking about. You had suggested that part of the dynamic is we won't be able to give instruction, but what we understand by insurance is that you know, here are specific instructions, you follow this, and if you don't, then you won't get the reward or benefit. Yeah, no, I, that's a nice question. So, I mean, part of the difficulty is. So, you know, this, this facility is meant to be built for 100,000 years. And the question is, in what language do you write the instructions such that the next 100,000 years of human beings, on the assumption that there still is 100,000 years of human beings, will understand? 
because you, you can't assume that whatever language people will speak in 100,000 years will resemble anything like the language we have. Not only because we can't know what languages will be spoken in 100,000 years, but we don't know whether our species will evolve cognitively in such a way that the very nature of what it is to communicate changes. So there's just the problem, before we even get to the content of whatever instructions we are trying to communicate, there's almost sort of the ontological question of what is the language that we can speak now to speak to any possible language for a frame of time that is probably larger than the frame of time in which human languages themselves have evolved. It seems like a, a simple thought experiment solves that, which is just that it's a continual translation effort. Yes, but then that's why it's interesting that the Finnish government has to do something which seems, I mean, you need to do this, but how do we obligate future generations to keep translating? Right? And so the Finnish government has this idea that we have to create a very special novel legal mechanism, which is we have to obligate all future generations to be the caretakers of our waste. And part of that, so I, I agree with you, you could say every generation has to be entrusted with a certain responsibilities for this containment, including the responsibility of translation. But what binds the future generation to any decision we make today? That would require that a future generation decides to bind itself to what we thought they needed to be bound to. So we can't foreclose the possibility that there would be breakages in the translation. Or you could imagine if there was a kind of natural or nuclear catastrophe, and all the records were destroyed, and then 10,000 years later, the next species or the next form of human beings discovered this without having the records much as today we might discover an ancient city and not have the records. So is part of what you're worried about then just that there really is no fail-safe on the one hand for a continual translation effort, and that on the other hand, people just are going to do whatever they want, regardless of a good faith obligation that we can imagine, somehow everybody continues to do. Well, that's part of the problem, thinking through. I mean, the, the inter you know, usually when we think of obligations, they're always projected from the past to the present. And now we have this very complicated question of not just the projection of obligations to a future that's imaginable or that we can delimit in time, but a future that, in a sense, exceeds that. And then the question is, how do we think of something like obligation in that context? How do we think of the practice of the translation in that context? Um, and the deeper paradox that I'm just trying to reflect on is, you know, there are many people today who are thinking, who have a sense that something fundamental has, you know, we're experiencing a kind of anthropological transformation of what it is to be human. And one way to think about it, though it's not the only way, is that we have now produced something which is a material object which will exist longer than the entire human species. And this is not just, you know, uh, incidental production, it's millions and millions of tons of this material, which is lethal to all life. So then the question is, where are we as a human species, given that we've accomplished this? And I, of course I use that somewhat ironically. That's what I mean by the contamination of eternity. As you could say that human beings have always desired for something eternal, something permanent and enduring, whether it's religion or art or what have you. <laughs> You know, what, what the French writer André Malraux calls anti-destiny, that we, we want to overcome death by producing something eternal. Well, in a kind of ironic way, we've, we've produced it. 
plastics and nuclear waste. Yes, in the back. Uh, most interesting to me is just the, the ideas that come up in imagining trying to execute such an endeavor. We already have so many examples that tell us what happens with these things. I mean, just the, the Masoretic Torah has many, many rules that some people obey, but many, many people consider to be absurd. And the other thought is, is at the time of you know, the institution of Judaism, they actually did succeed in doing something that had stuck, which is eradicating human sacrifice from Western religion, more or less, which was rampant then. So for me, that's the achievement, not so-called monotheism. But it's a tendency to look at even something 20 years ago and assume it's ridiculous, because we look at everything from a self-centered temporal standpoint, where we are the highest version of humanity or whatever. But it's really just it's a way to look at ourselves, as far as for me. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate those comments. I mean, what's interesting about nuclear waste and plastic is it's a material object. So it's not a thought or idea or a system. It's a material object that imposes a kind of facticity, namely, it, you know, it is radioactive, and it not just radioactive to human life, but to all life. So there's, so there's also something novel that we're trying to deal with a fundamental transformation in our relationship to ourselves and the world, not through a new system of ideas or the abolition of another system, but through something that's a material object. And you know, as I tried to emphasize, a material object that, that will exist longer than the entire human species, which if you think about it, is an odd accomplishment, but is one that really ruptures it gives a different measure to the human species as such. And what you know, future alien generations will remember is not Picasso, Beethoven, but nuclear waste, right? And plastics, that's, that's, that's what we are giving to the infinite future that will see the detritus, the kipple, is not all the things that we value so much, but precisely what is the waste product to produce those things that we value, which is the things that we need to produce energy, et cetera. So that was the thought I'm trying to think through without knowing, being honest, what to do, because it's not clear what to do. Yes? So what you're saying is, as humans, we are inherently selfish. Yeah. So what you're saying is, Well, that's a good question. I mean, I deliberately didn't try to draw out what consequences we might establish about the psychology of the humans or the intentions of the humans, largely because what's interesting about waste is that waste is a kind of unintentional problem. So, you know, we, we, we produce waste, not because we want to produce waste, but we want to produce something else, and then there's waste. So I'm open to the idea, in a sense, we, we could then use this, this dilemma to then think about what does this reflect about ourselves and, you know, the kinds of decisions we make. Uh, in one sense, I would agree with you if we expand it to the sense that, you know, uh, nuclear waste and plastics, as I tried to show dramatically, is you know destroying animal and animal life, as, and, and along of other things. And it could be understood as a kind of human selfishness, to in a sense, through its own attempt to realize itself, the collateral damage, so to speak, is everyone else. And that might be way one way to sort of draw out the implication. So I'm open to that, but I was deliberately, you know, that's a distinct problem where we could have a debate about what implication to draw. Uh, I was more interested in first being clear about almost just the, the logic of this problem in order then to say, okay, the next step would be what does this tell us about us? 
And let's imagine tomorrow, miraculously, we, we decided to shut down worldwide all nuclear plants. We still have produced 100 million tons or whatever that number is. That's not, so we still have to do something with it. And that's not obvious, given that the, the facility in Onkalo, which will be closed in 2120, is only going to house a fraction of what Finland has produced. And I didn't get into it, but the cost of it is astronomical. So even if you know tomorrow miraculously we decided, you know we're going to finally you know do things seriously and, and, and no longer use nuclear waste, we're not going to use one trillion bags a day. We still have produced 300 metric tons over the past 40 years of plastic, so we we still have that problem as well as the problem of nuclear waste. So it's still a problem that we're freighted with, even if we became you know saints, ecological saints tomorrow. Oh, yes, sorry. So you spoke about plastic and nuclear waste as things that are relatively eternal in yes. terms of how they outspan our life, our lifespan. Not just our lifespan, but the whole human species. And nuclear waste, the entire length of time of life on Earth. Okay. Right. So, leading from that, you're saying that everything has uh, a beginning and an end. And most of the things that do have a beginning and then end relate to the same lifespan of humans. Then you would say that society has a beginning and end, as we could see from past societies. Yes. And the progression and the lifespan of the next society that succeeds it depends on how long the technology lasts. And he spoke about our tendency to treat our technology and our current thought systems as superior to what was before us. And a lot of the societies before us have technology that is physical, like writings and art and drawings. So do you have faith in art? technology, the computers, as being able to share information efficiently enough to for stuff not to be lost in translation as it was more prone to? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, actually, I mean, take for example floppy disks. Floppy disks is a technology that now libraries have to keep special machines to read floppy disks even though floppy disks were designed and developed in the 70s. So there's an interesting argument that actually technological advances in recording of information technology are more vulnerable to being lost than you know, traditional systems of writing and books and things like that. So that's part of the problem I was alluding to, that if in Onkalo they have to build a very sophisticated system that over the next 100,000 years has to be managed and updated, then instructions have to be written to communicate to future generations not only about what the intention is of this site, because we could imagine that in 100,000 years, if people forget about this site because there's a glacial formation that comes over northern Finland, and then the glacial recedes, it's rediscovered, if those people then are unable to read the instructions, then we can't tell them not to go there, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
So part of the challenge is a kind of semiotic challenge. How can we invent uh, a system of signs and a system of communications as well as a technology to record that today that somehow we can with some assurance think and believe, hope, will be communicable to 100,000 years. In a sense, it's a bit like the Voyager. You know, when they sent out the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, they put these discs. The idea is somehow we could communicate to aliens. You know, we can play Beethoven and I don't know. We have that same problem, but the aliens is ourselves in 100,000 years, and it's not sending Voyager to make contact, so it's to say, this is contaminated material. The further complication, as I alluded to, is we don't know, and I think this also touches on your comments, whether in 10,000 years human beings develop technology whereby this waste is no longer waste. We just don't know. It could be that in 10,000 years, scientists have figured a way to do something with this waste product, and then at that point it's no longer waste. So all of our systems to protect it, all of our warning signs, actually we don't want to warn them about it because we would want them to, so we don't know. So it's kind of paradoxical because we're striving for eternity through our technology and we're going to have an end. I mean, if we don't have an end, then we are eternal. Well, regardless of what we don't have, we produce something that for all practical purposes has no end. And what that is, is contaminated nuclear material. That's our achievement. And if you think, you know, art, there's a traditional story, art is about producing something that outlasts the human. When we go to museums, we value those things which have a status of outlasting human finitude. We want buildings to stand. We want, you know, artworks to stand. And we've now finally produced something which is eternal in a way that no other object is. The paradox is that it's nuclear waste. That's the true artwork of the human, is plastics and nuclear waste, well, not Picasso and Beethoven. One last thing, I don't want to take up anybody else's time. Would you say that we can produce more things that are eternal through the nuclear waste and plastic? Well, I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying that we have de facto produced something that will exist for millions and millions of years. But do we have the potential to produce things that are more of a positive impact? As far as no. Even our ideas are fragile. Mm -hmm. right? Even our ideas of morality are extremely fragile. That's why what's interesting about plastics and nuclear waste is that it's real materiality. It's not an idea. It's it's, it's actually a material object. And, and you know, and so thus far, no. Yes. Well, I was just going to add one thing. With the you know, recently politicians have been talking about you know climate damage, and and many of them are talking about nuclear power having no carbon footprint. And they're talking about increasing nuclear power or including that into these sort of new technologies. So there's really no sign of stopping now. Of it. course, and you know, with the present government, I won't call it government, whatever is going on up there, it's clearly going, you know, ridiculously as a ship of fools in the other direction. Yeah. And even with the whole question of climate damage with children coming out and saying, you know, look what you've given us, yeah. you know, and then adding this nuclear waste to that. You've given us your garbage. Exactly. In the hopes that we might figure out how yeah. to use it. Yeah. I mean, that was the powerful indictment of Greta Thunberg. We will never forgive you because yeah. this is what we're giving them. Welcome to life. So I agree with you. That's the predicament. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. 
I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? I have a question. So I was kind of just brainstorming about what a possible solution is, and right, I keep on hearing talking about the materiality and the electricity of these things being material. And that brings a difference between how it's not an idea, it's not a thought, it's not something that has like a different modality or ontology. So does that presuppose some kind of more concrete understanding of like say physics or of the material world? In which case, perhaps the fundamental understandings of those things will not change even across generations and generations. So I'm imagining something like, you know, perhaps the structure of atoms or how people calculate wave equations wouldn't change in the future. And even if it did inform, people would still be able to translate it mathematically from what they have then to what we have now. So that being a way of preserving some kind of translatability, not through the apparatus of language in general, but through the apparatus of facticity or materiality that's going to persist from now to then. Right, that's one thought. And the second thought is that, I don't know if you've heard of three bodies problem. Um, one of the things that the author has written was about the more advanced technologies, the shorter lifespan they have. So one of the characters, what it did to preserve human knowledge was to just carve things on stones. So using a very primitive idea, you know, the same way they're hoping to keep the facility to run for 100,000 years, couldn't they just carve something onto the facility in the ways in which I was trying to suggest with the functions or equations of the enduring materiality such that they will be able to know what is there and it will be a reliable way of making sure that the information stays there. Would that be a way of thinking about this? So those are great questions. So actually there are some eticians who are trying to devise what they would think is a primitive system of signs that somehow would be universally communicable. So people are thinking in that line. Now, there's of course obvious problems with that. One is, even if a future scientist or archaeologist recognize the sign that the scary things don't come, what obligates that person to listen to the sign? In the same way that if an archaeologist today goes to Mexico and discovers an Aztec temple, or in Egypt, you know, the tombs of the pharaohs, they were clear signs you cannot enter. But we don't listen to that because it's superstitious. We don't think that whatever curse or whatever, so we can't bind a future agent to heed our own warnings, even if those warnings are intelligible. So that's one problem. The second problem with the first thing it's also quite complicated because, I mean, mathematical formulas might have a more robustness of being able to be intelligible and communicable over time. Now, that also presupposes a continuity of 
education and training in how to do mathematics. But the problem is with Onkalo, you also need very specific instructions about how to open the door, how to do it. So you need things with real semantic content. That's where you have a real practical problem, that if we needed to write instructions about do this, don't do this, every thousand years this power generator has to be changed and here's the voltage, here's how you do it. I mean, we can't even communicate with IKEA instructions how to put furniture together. I mean, you know, because IKEA is also, I have instructions that any illiterate person can, can somehow follow. And we all you know, curse IKEA. So you can see the scale of complexity when you're not building an IKEA thing, but you're trying to you know, have instructions for an extremely complex engineering project with power and computers, electricity, et cetera, et cetera. So, this is to show that the real problems of both syntax, grammar, semiotics, etc., in order to think about what language we use to speak to that future. But what if, instead of giving rules or instructions, you're simply giving a form of, for example, of the description of what is there? Yeah, but again, I'm saying the problem is much more fundamental. How can we ensure that this marking is read as a sign? That's the problem. So, it's, mm -hmm. even before you can identify something as the bearer of meaning, you have to identify it as a sum. I see. Right? I see. So, like, what alphabet are we going to write this in? <laughs> you can't say phonetic alphabet because why would we expect in 10,000 years that people would know what the phonetic alphabet is? In the same way that when we discovered cuneiform, we couldn't read it until someone deciphered it. Or there's something called the Vozhny manuscript, which is a book comes out of the Russian context, and no one knows whether it actually is a language or not, because no one's been able to decipher it. So either it actually is a language, or a secret language, a coded language, or it's a fraud, but we don't know. Now with that example of the Vozhny manuscript, or cuneiform, or whatever, the consequences of not being able to decipher it are pretty low. With nuclear contaminated material, the consequences are high, because if we can't communicate to the future generation that this power generator needs to be changed, then so that's what I'm saying. It's even at a, it's a really the materiality, the ontology of the language, of the sign, what counts as a sign, uh -huh. what is the grammar, in the way you can't presuppose universal grammar, universal signs for letters, right, et cetera, et cetera. And then those other questions you're talking about are built up on top of that. Uh -huh. That's another layer of complication. We are not sure how to overcome the problem of leaving markers to warn you. Messages from long-lost civilizations were found in our times, but it took us many years to understand the language and the signs. Some we still cannot read. Maybe one last question? Yeah. 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 Is it possible to use the um, plastic to stop nuclear, or the nuclear to stop plastic? You know, I mean, many smart people are trying to figure out what to do with nuclear waste. And one of the questions is contain it and bury it. The problem is that plastic actually degrades quicker than the nuclear waste. And there's different kinds of plastic. Robust plastics might take 10,000 years. But nuclear waste has a shelf life of hundreds of plastics. Another solution that people thought about, uh, but they view as too risky, is to send it to space. 
Now, there's other problems with that, because now we're you know, in intimidated space, because we've already started to run away to the debris in the orbit system. But then the risk is, let's imagine, you know, we have a rocket, which doesn't have much of a payload anyway, which takes a lot of energy that produces waste to get rid of the waste of energy. But let's imagine we figure that out. What can prevent, like, a challenger disaster, that we're sending a rocket payload up? And if this stuff explodes in the atmosphere, then, you know... Yeah, but they, that's really the challenge. And that's why in Finland they thought the safest place is furthest removed from the surface of the Earth because human surfaces are volatile to change. Human-made change, wars, climate change, things like that. But deep underground, in areas that are not on fault lines, is the place that is least liable to be affected by change. And that's where they decided it has to be put. So in a sense, you can't transport it off the planet. You can't keep it on the planet. You have to sort of bury it. And that's why I thought it's interesting almost that human life first starts with the fascination with the underground, the caves of Shorin. That's the first sign of human consciousness. The last sign of human consciousness when we're all dead, or we leave behind it. That the aliens will not come in the stuff that's gone. The aliens, when they come here, they won't discover the cave, they'll discover our nuclear waste. That will be our argument. Okay, done. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>